If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. And it's that time of year again. We're going to run our piece on tomatoes when I spoke to celebrity chef Paul McCullough and his delightful husband Jeremy Stanford about their book on tomatoes and how you plant tomatoes and everything you need to know about tomatoes. And we are going to talk once again to the Director of Advocacy at Equality North Carolina about all the stuff that's happening with HB2. And our man in the mix, Steve Pride, is sharing a snippet of his uh, interview with Clinton confidant David Mixner talking to about Bill Clinton. And live in studio, we are going to talk about a documentary that is being released on DVD tomorrow called Packed in a Trunk. It is the true story of filmmaker Jane Anderson's discovery of Well, her heritage, she had an amazing artistic aunt who was, until she went on this journey of discovery, almost lost to time. So we're going to hear all about that. But first, here's the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Carol Myers. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news interaffecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending April 23, 2016. Guidelines published by the British Foreign Office this week caution UK LGBT citizens traveling to North Carolina and Mississippi to keep a low profile because of those U.S. states' recently enacted anti-LGBT laws. The advisory joins Foreign Office warnings to British LGBT people about visiting Russia, Turkey, or predominantly Muslim countries for similar reasons. The new U.S. travel guidelines warn that laws vary from state to state. When you are physically present in a state, even temporarily, you are subject to that state's laws. Barack Obama happened to be visiting Britain this week, probably his last official visit as president. He called for the discriminatory laws to be overturned, but assured queer Brits that they'd be safe in those two states. I want everybody here in the United Kingdom to know that the people of North Carolina and Mississippi are wonderful people. They are hospitable people. They are beautiful states. And you are welcome. And you should come and enjoy yourself. And I think you'll be treated with extraordinary hospitality. I also think that the laws that have been passed there are wrong. And although I respect their different viewpoints, I think it's very important for us not to send signals that anybody is treated differently. In other news, a major U.S. federal appeals court ruling affirming the rights of a transgender student in Virginia is expected to have a direct impact on bathroom bills in other states, including North Carolina's. 
Those laws require trans people to use public restrooms, locker rooms, and other sex-segregated facilities that match their birth gender, even if their gender identity is different. Female-to-male Virginia teen Gavin Grimm sued his school board after he was ordered to use a campus restroom that corresponded to his biological gender. Even before he began treatment for gender dysphoria, the lawsuit charged, girls and women who encountered Gavin in female restrooms reacted negatively because they perceived Gavin to be a boy. The Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled 2-1 to one on April 19th that the order against Gavin violated Title IX of the Education Act of 1972, which bans bias based on sex and ordered a lower court that had ruled differently to re-examine the case. Any legal challenge to North Carolina's HB2 would also be heard by the Fourth Circuit, so its decision in the Virginia transgender teen case could also spell the death of the anti-trans law in the Tar Heel State. The sponsor of Tennessee's bathroom bill temporarily pulled her proposal from consideration this week for what she called further study. The National Basketball Association continues to pressure North Carolina lawmakers to take another look at HB2, warning this week that next year's NBA All-Star Game will be moved out of Charlotte if the law isn't changed. The News and Observer reports that HB2 has already cost the state millions of tourism dollars and, according to the Greater Raleigh Convention and Visitors Bureau, some $28 million in future spending is at stake. Boston, Pearl Jam, and Duran Duran joined the growing list of entertainers this week to either cancel gigs in North Carolina or donate the proceeds of their shows to local LGBT advocacy groups. And the Daily Beast reports that calls to transgender suicide hotlines have more than doubled since Republican Governor Pat McCrory signed HB2 into law March 24th. The latest polls show the seemingly clueless McCrory, who continues to defend the law, losing his re-election bid in November to current Attorney General Roy Cooper, a Democrat. Cooper has said he won't defend the clearly unconstitutional HB2 in court. The Republican-dominated state legislature begins its short session in the coming week. Some observers predict, despite mounting pressure, that they're unlikely to make significant changes to the law. And finally, Mississippi suffers a growing backlash against its sweeping so-called Religious Freedom Law, HB 1523. It allows people in the private and public sectors to discriminate against LGBT people or any other people they don't like based on sincerely held religious belief or moral conviction. GoGo's founder Belinda Carlisle, who said she considered canceling a scheduled concert in Jackson before using it to speak out against the law, has a gay son. She raked Republican Governor Phil Bryant over the coals in an open letter this week for signing and continuing to defend it. The governor, meanwhile, belittled Canadian rocker Brian Adams for canceling his concert in Biloxi because of HB 1523 and continues to falsely claim that the far-reaching anti-LGBT law in Mississippi is no different than laws passed in several other states. We have one guy from the 1980s that cancels a concert. We all want to talk about that. It is interesting. The media says, you know, y'all ought to be dealing with these important issues and not uh, some issue uh, about someone's deeply held religious beliefs not going to take anyone's rights away from them. It simply says the government cannot discriminate against people of faith or religious organizations, which is the same law. If I could get anyone to look at that, I can give you a copy of it. The same law that Governor Como signed into a law in New York in 2011. 
Saturday Night Live comic actor Tracy Morgan, who himself once came under fire for insensitive homophobic comments, has canceled a scheduled stand-up performance in Tunica, Mississippi, because of the law. But outperformer in Clinton, Mississippi native Lance Bass was back in his hometown this week helping to plant a community garden. He says he's organizing events in Mississippi, not canceling them. I learned in church that you always fight hate with love, he said. That's News Wrap for the week ending April 23rd, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Carol Myers. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Well, as you could tell from NewsWrap, certainly North Carolina is not the only state that is facing bathroom bills, anti-discrimination laws, et cetera, et cetera. But North Carolina really is fighting probably the most prominent of these fights with their HB2, which not only limits people to bathrooms that match the gender on their birth certificates, but it also prevents LGBT protections in local municipalities. A few weeks ago, we talked to Crystal Richardson, who is the Director of Advocacy at Equality North Carolina, who's really taken the lead in fighting HB2. And it just seems like in these last few weeks, so much has changed. So we've got Crystal back talking to us on the phone from North Carolina live right now. Crystal, are you there? I'm here. Thank you for having me back on the show. Thank you for staying up late to talk to us. (laughs) You know, I almost didn't know what to ask you about first today. There was that big rally. There is the Fourth Circuit case. There was just today a filing by Democratic members of Congress to repeal HB2. What do you think is kind of the biggest news right now in HB2? Yeah, um... All of the things you just mentioned, and I was going to even add on a a fourth thing. Go ahead. Um, So my boss, executive director at Equality North Carolina, has just been sworn in yesterday. So he's now a House representative and the first openly LGBT representative in our state. So we have lots of movement going on with HB2 in North Carolina. That is great. And he's got his work cut out for him. Oh, yes. I mean, one of the things that uh, I've heard him say time and time again is, I can't take it. I can't sit here idly and just watch our community, our LGBT community, just be pummeled by our General Assembly in North Carolina and, and just really wanted to take a stand. So I would say, back to answer your question, the, the Fourth Circuit case was major news. I think that a lot of the legislators who may have been unsure, uncertain about whether this was constitutional or not, this was a very clear message, particularly for our trans teenagers and and students, that we won't stand for discrimination. And so it was a huge victory for many members of the LGBT community, particularly for our transgender brothers and sisters. Um, And then I would say the second most important thing uh, would be the fact that Chris Groh has now been inducted into the uh, House of Representatives. So it gives us some hope. And, And also with the introduction of that new bill, it gives us some hope that we will um, hopefully 
soon have full inclusive protections for all North Carolinians. Um, Crystal, hi, this is Wenzel. I'm, I'm Abby's sidekick. Huh. Uh, anyway, I, I was curious, when, when you're reading this news from afar, it seems like you've got this especially mm-hmm. vicious legislature going on. Mm-hmm. But what is it like out amongst the actual citizens of the state of North Carolina? Oh, wow. I mean, I really wish you all could have been there today just to feel the energy um, was really, really powerful. We had lots of groups out there partnering with us because this HB2 is not just a bathroom bill. Uh, we had lots of folks from NAACP and, and ACLU and other organizations really talking about the pieces with the employment um, and the minimum wage. And, you know, it was just really great to see the energy of folks coming together standing beside one another and just being vocal about the need for better protections and better representation by our state representatives. Lots of folks were out protesting literally all day long. I was out there early, early, uh, about 8 o'clock, and there were folks who stayed well past 8 p.m. because they wanted to be there at all of the rallies and to support folks who were um, you know, who have traveled far to be out there today at the state capitol. So the energy has just been really amazing, and just to see folks really coming together and unifying to make a difference in our state is just a beautiful thing to see. Have you been surprised by any of the supporters? Like, for example, today I just saw that NASCAR came out in opposition mm-hmm. of HB2, and I just thought, well, there's a sea change. <laughs> Yeah, we, we joke today, like, you know this has got to be a, a crazy issue when you've got NASCAR speaking against it. And even I think Donald Trump said this was a ridiculous bill. So, you know, when, when we start aligning with uh, folks who we, you know, who normally wouldn't align with us, I mean, that that to me is a strong, strong message. Yeah, and it really says that this is not a fringe issue. I think just sort of average everyday people who may not have firsthand experience with these issues just get that there's something wrong here. And that that's very um, encouraging to me. Um, I did want to ask you a little bit about this Fourth Circuit case. I didn't see a lot about it on the news. And North Carolina, of course, is in the Fourth Circuit. It didn't deal directly with HB1. It dealt with a student who, a trans student, high school student, that was forbidden from using um, the bathroom of his choice. And uh, the the Fourth Circuit ruled that such a restriction violated Title IX, which prohibits sex discrimination um, in public schools. Do you think this is going to have an impact on HB2? Or what what role do you think this case is going to play in how this all turns out? Well, I'll tell you, one of the significant things is that, you know, we, we told them this, this bill jeopardizes billions of uh, uh, funding, Title IX funding, uh, for uh, you know, students here in North Carolina, and I think the Fourth Circuit made that very clear that this uh, is very unconstitutional. The the part of HB two where um, the Fourth Circuit decision really impacts us is the first part because it prohibits anyone who is in the gender nonconforming or transgender community from using the bathroom in which they identify. It forces particularly students to, to, to use the restroom in which they have on their birth certificate. And what the Fourth Circuit case ruling says is actually, no, you have to let these students use the restroom in which they identify. 
So it, uh, to me, it nullifies everything in the first section of uh, HB2, which is really the most, to me, hateful, um, one mm. of the most hateful portions of this bill. So, I, I mean, I think that it would be really uh, disheartening and a horrible thing for North Carolina to jeopardize that money by upholding this HB2 bill. So they're going to have to definitely reevaluate some things because that would put just billions of dollars in jeopardy, and we just can't let that happen in North Carolina. So it does seem to me it's sort of the writing is on the bathroom wall, so to speak. Um, I like that. (laughs) I love what you're doing. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I have a feeling I'm going to be reaching out to you again to get another status report in a couple of weeks. But have a great night, Crystal. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you all. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Crystal Richardson, the director of advocacy with Equality North Carolina. And the thing about the South is everybody down there is so, not every single person, but people generally are so lovely. And yet Southern lawmakers, given the chance to do the most socially aggressive thing, will almost always take the opportunity to do so. And I don't understand what it is about about one. All right. Well, speaking we'll speaking of politics, Hillary Clinton is certainly not responsible for the legacy of Bill Clinton. But what is that legacy on LGBT issues? One person who has a strong opinion on that topic is political strategist and one-time Clinton confidant David Mixner. Author, political strategist, and civil rights activist David Mixner first met Bill Clinton 45 years ago. They became close friends. When Bill ran for president, David raised money, helped deliver the gay vote, and post-victory was part of the White House transition team. Meeting with him in his New York City apartment, I asked about that time. Promises were made, he said. Promises were broken. The policy I am announcing today is, in my judgment, the right thing to do and the best way to do it. It is right because it provides greater protection to those who happen to be homosexual and want to serve their country honorably in uniform, obeying all the military's rules against sexual misconduct. It is the best way to proceed because it provides a sensible balance between the rights of the individual and the needs of our military. Well, let me just say this about don't ask, don't tell, and also don't look, because I really want to get this out there. First, I want to say there are those who would like to rewrite our history so that they look good, and so they can feel comfortable about what they did. I think we know who we're talking about. Doesn't make them bad people, but we must understand that if we allow them to rewrite our history, we will diminish as a people all those who made that history, and all of those who are dead are no longer able to defend themselves from the rewriting of that history. And the 14,000 people who were LGBT Americans in the military who lost their careers, some who committed suicide because of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, because they were outed and their families didn't know they were gay and they were discharged from the military, some who served time in Leavenworth prison and were court-martialed, but there were 14,000 of them. No way know how was don't ask, don't tell progress. Not only did it destroy those 14,000 lives or put them at risk at least, it removed the power of the president to change the policy 
and it required us to get an act of Congress to do it. Don't ask, don't tell was a cowardly act. It was bad policy. It was not necessary. If an executive order had been issued on the day of the Clinton inauguration, no one would have even paid attention to it. This is not something that we initiated as a community. It's something that was promised to us in order to get our votes and our money. The second thing we have to understand that the right to serve as Americans is not a political gift to us. It is a constitutional right. It was something that was ours all along. That the fact that it was taken from us was a great injustice, not a gift from any politician. The third thing I want people to remember is let's just assume that as commander-in-chief, and let's remember what this is policy was about, that Bill Clinton as commander-in-chief, as president, had to live under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So that means that as commander-in-chief, he would wake up with Mrs. Clinton and Chelsea at the top floor of the White House, and, and as he weaved his way down through the White House to the Oval Office, the moment he walked in the Oval Office, he could never acknowledge Mrs. Clinton, never acknowledge the existence of Chelsea, that none of his benefits as commander-in-chief they would be able to avail themselves of. They'd have to move out of the White House because it was public housing. And that if he talked about his wife or his child being sick or a death in the family or needed to be by their bedside or just celebrate an achievement of Chelsea in school, he would lose his job as commander-in-chief. Now, Come on, he can't live that way, and neither could we. It's that simple. You had been friends with Bill Clinton since 1969. How is that relationship today? A little rough. You know, after I got arrested over Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and which, by the way, was an individual, personal decision of conscience. The community had worked real hard to find a place at the table in 92. And there's no way that they should have associated themselves with me for my act of conscience, or what Quakers called giving witness to a bad evil, even though it won't change. This was an individual decision on my part that I did not expect praise for, and I'm not a victim of, and nor do I regret. The day after I got arrested, Rahm Emanuel, announced to the Wall Street Journal on the front page that I was no longer welcome in the White House, nor anybody associated with me was welcome in the White House. In 24 hours, I lost the ability to work and was blacklisted for four years. I lived on credit cards. I took my watches to be palmed to pay my rent. But this was done with full knowledge that would happen. There was no victimhood. I expected that to happen, and it's just the way the game's played. I did what I thought was right, and they did. Find more information at davidmixner.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. You know, you always hear that good politics is about compromise, mm -hmm. but... 
I wonder for a lot of these people after those compromises, like yeah. don't ask, don't tell, yeah. you, you wonder if people have a hard time sleeping or if they accept that. That was, that was just fascinating. I, and I was wondering when I was listening to him talk, it's got to be hard to have the Clintons in your social circle. Not easy. A lot of maintenance going on there. <laughs> well, anyway, where else would you hear something like David Mixter talking about Bill Clinton? Might be I am, are you? And here we are. And you know what we need? We need a couple of people to call and become members. It's only $25. Yep. You just go to the website, kpfk.org, kpfk click on the button, say you heard it here, and you're a member. That's it. And we'll keep doing what we do, and you keep listening. And that's just how we can keep bringing this kind of programming to you. And I just, there aren't too many places I can think of where you will find programming like this. Because don't forget... Revolutions cost money. They do, Bernie. So, <laughs> still to come, I'll be talking to Paul McCullough and Jeremy Stanford about the art and science of growing tomatoes. And you will have a chance to win a DVD copy of Packed in a Trunk, The Lost Art of Edith Lake Wilkinson, as we talk to the Jane... film's makers. Yes, Jane Anderson, the film's co-writer, executive producer, and Michelle Boyaner, its director, co-writer, and executive producer. So we'll be right back. Tab Hunter's Secret, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Blonde and tanned with surf boy good looks, Tab Hunter was one of the hottest teen idols of the 1950s. He would ultimately star in over 40 films. At the time, Hunter had fictitious romantic relationships with close friends Debbie Reynolds and Natalie Wood, cooked up to dispel the gay rumors. In his 2006 autobiography, he acknowledged he is gay. Hunter had long-term relationships with actor Anthony Perkins and figure skater Ronnie Robertson. He's now settled down with his partner for over 30 years, Alan Glazer. What was also unknown in the 1950s was his love of both singing and Broadway musicals. That would lead to his 1957 number one hit single, Young Love. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Scott Ilnicki. Hello, I'm Tab Hunter, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM. 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, and streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. It's time to grab your hoe and get dirty. And I do mean garden implement. Yeah, let go of me, Wenzel. It's t thank you. It's <laughs> that time of year when we put the tomatoes in the earth. I know it seemed like summer started last February, but you have to wait till the days are long enough. And this will all be explained from the time I sit down to talk to Paul McCullough and Jeremy Stanford. Summertime. Yes, it's true. Summertime is actually here. And what does summer mean to everybody? Tomatoes. And so to talk tomatoes, we've called in Food Network star finalist chef Paul McCullough and producer, director, writer Jeremy Sanford to talk to us about the world of tomatoes. So welcome, gentlemen. You are the men who literally wrote the book on tomatoes. We did. We, we literally did. We love our aromatherapy book. And we should point out that's Roma starting with an R, as in... 
where I'm a tomato. Now, summer has been here a long time at this point. Oy. When should the tomatoes have gone in? Well, in L.A., the season starts early. So mid-March is when you can get your tomatoes in the ground as long as the plot that you picked for your tomatoes gets about six to eight hours of sun a day. Well, now, how big is your garden? Because you guys are a lot more serious than most people. That's a personal question, how big my garden is. <laughs> and how does it grow, sir? It grows. Lovely. <laughs> we have a, a pretty large backyard with a beautiful avocado tree and an orange tree. And currently, we have 22 tomato plants in raised beds. And how many varieties have you guys gone with? Out of 24, I think I probably have 20 varieties and four repeats. And what is your favorite? What's your favorite, Jeremy? I always buy the Aussie. <laughs> the Roma. We actually have a couple of Romas this year. Paul has not had much success growing Roma tomatoes, but we have two that are actually thriving. The irony. The irony. Yes, after writing the book about them. Mm. I've never been able to grow a Roma that didn't have the blossom and rot, didn't uh -huh. just look like this stunted version of something that I wished it could be. But this year, I have two San Marzanos, and they are looking amazing. I brought Jeremy out. I'm like, honey, look, I think the curse is lifted. And those are expensive when you buy them in the oh, store, yeah. too. So yeah. nicely done. Now, to get back to varieties, because a lot of people are afraid if they don't, see a red tomato. Right. Like I've read that they can't really sell yellow tomatoes in Europe because Europeans just don't cotton to them. What is the difference between varieties beyond the cosmetic? Because I know there, there are white ones that actually look like organs out there. Mm. Organs. Like like drained <laughs> kidneys or something. I mean, like, uh, it looks so, it looks well like a plant uterus. Yeah. It's exactly what it looks well, like. Well, originally they were yellow. I mean, the very first tomatoes were yellow. And that's where the Italian word pomodoro comes from because it's a golden apple. But is a difference in texture and flavor? Is it just... everything? Yeah, everything. Texture, flavor, the water content, the thickness of the skin, the meatiness of the fruit inside. Some people say, "Oh, you should never just slice a Roma tomato and eat it on a sandwich." Well, actually, if I well this year when I picked the ones that I've actually grown, they're absolutely delicious. And the green zebra stripes are a perfect example of a green tomato that. As it ripens up, you just think, is that ripe? Is that ripe? And then as it's ripening up, it gets a nice yellow sort of blush over the top of it. And the stripes just go really deep green to the bottom to this really pale green on top. And it's bright and acidic and just amazing and delicious. You can cut some of those and top it on a piece of halibut. And there's just so many varieties that we can grow here in California. The chocolate stripes and the little yellow pears and the beefsteaks and the Aussies and they're ones that are shaped like peppers. Now, now what are the Aussies? Because I, I know you mentioned that that's one of your favorites. Well, they're generally big and thick. We're talking tomatoes. Right? We are. Okay. Because a tomato's a weed, and it wants to not stand up. It wants to sprawl all over your garden and just keep sending out tendrils and just have as many tomatoes as possible. One thing you'll notice the varieties of tomatoes is the thickness of the wall, and that's why Romas are a paste tomato, which mm -hmm. is one of the sort of four main categories. And they have a much thicker wall, which is less seeds and more wall. And that's why they use those for tomato paste, tomato sauce, just because it's a much thicker media tomato. Here's a question somebody asked me. The suckers, that little tiny shoot between the branch and the main stem, they mm -hmm. said, make sure you take them off. And I always mean to, but then I run out of energy. To pinch or not to pinch. Exactly. What are your feelings, gentlemen? I'm a no pinch kind of guy. But I and know some people like to do it, but I don't think you need to. Are you staring at Paul with as I pinch him. <laughs> I think you need to pinch a little bit. 
because my raised bed only has so much space. And for example, this one plant that I have is really growing and it is like gangbusters. If I don't pinch off some of that growth, it's going to take over and shade my other plants. There's not going to be as much airflow, which is really important in your tomato garden. So I'd say pinch 50% of what you have. Now, here's a to get precious. When people talk about grapes, they always like to talk about the terroir and the, the flavors it brings from the local soil into the fruit. Do tomatoes actually do that to a degree that you've noticed, or is that just beyond twee? I think they do. You know, our friends up in Ojai have an amazing plot of land, and they have all the space they want to need, so they never pinch, and they have really hard clay soil. And so they're amending a lot. But the tomatoes, we both grew green zebra stripes. His green zebra stripes had a distinctly different flavor when we went and tasted than mine did growing here in my backyard, on actually on Gardner Street, <laughs> and in my raised bed where I've amended the soil with compost and, and, and worm casings and cow poop and miracle Grow potting soil to give it as much as possible because without it, I'm just sticking a tomato plant in my ground in the backyard is not a favorable condition for that plant. So, What do you do to keep pests away short of spraying everything with malathion, which I assume we all don't think mm. is a good thing. And then Dr. Earth has a really great organic insect spray. But I think, you know, like roses like to be fussed over, I think your tomato plant likes to be handled a little bit. And check it out. If you see some small pests, you get some of that spray on there, pick off the big ones. And it is a good idea to not to grow your tomatoes in the same area of your yard every year, because then the pest can get established there. Okay, now there's undeniably nothing better than a fresh tomato from the garden with just a little sprinkling of salt. <sighs> but what is your favorite simple thing to do that isn't quite that simple when you've got a warm tomato right in your hand? And one of the easiest things to do is just, if you have Roman tomatoes, anything, cut them in half, little oil, salt, pepper, stick them in your oven, and just roast them. And it really develops the flavor, and they get super sweet, and the flavor is amazing. So generally, tomatoes like to struggle a little bit. You don't want to mm. overwater them because you can actually dilute the taste. Anyway, because this is the Gay Agenda Show, we have selected for your edification a variety of tomatoes that you may find interesting. I found... A tomato called Aunt Ruby's German Cherry, <laughs> which sounds like a lesbian euphemism. This is a green cherry tomato. What did you find, Paul? I found one called the White Queen. Ooh. She's a big round girl with a beautiful green top. I ran across one that shares its name with the fourth book in the Armistice Maupin Tales of the City series. It's called Baby Cakes, and it's a red cherry with, and I quote, a natural salty flavor. Mm. Mm. What about the beef master? What about the beef master? I mean, master? that just opens up a whole... I mean, everyone needs a good beef master in their garden. Beef master. Beef master. Jeremy? Uh, and the beef master's good friends with a pink pounder. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you can grow both at the same time. Are you familiar with a pink pounder? Is it large? Oh, yes. It's pink and it's large. <laughs> That's all you need. Well, I did run across one called Sappho. Sappho? Mm-hmm. It's a red cherry with a sweet acid flavor. Mm. Sappho. Well, gentlemen, this has been a most satisfying little tour through the world of tomatoes. Thank you so much for coming out. Oh, well, thank you. It's nice to be here again. Well, it's lovely to see you all again. So for more information, people go to romatherapy.com and don't forget the hyphen between Roma 
and therapy. Also, paulskitchen.com to find out more about Mr. McCullough. There you go. And if anyone is listening and would like to order the book as a special, uh, extra special gift, we have this great aromatherapy magnet that we'll throw in there as well. And it's got all these measure equivalents and it's wonderful for baking. So Why, I'm looking at one right now and I can't wait to put it up on my refrigerator when I get home. So thank you again for coming out, Paul McCullough and Jeremy Stanford. And this is Wenzel Jones for IMRU. It's summertime, summertime, some, some, summertime, 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 summertime. It's summertime. And I should point out that I actually did that interview two years ago, so I don't know if that magnet offer is still standing. Okay. So do order the book, but I can't count on you getting a magnet as well. You somehow made tomatoes sound kind of sexy and very queer. I know. So, yeah, we have to gay it up because it is IMRU, the Gay Agenda Show. That's true. So. That's true. And speaking of gay agendas. And now, from the documentary Packed in a Trunk, The Lost Art of Edith Lake Wilkinson. Joining us in studio is the great niece of that woman, three-time Emmy Award winner Jane Anderson, the co-writer and executive producer of the documentary. As well as Michelle Boyaner. Boyaner. Yes, I'm getting the nod. I got the accent correct. Close enough. It's director, co-writer, and executive producer. So welcome, ladies. Thank you for having us. A pleasure to be here. It's it's a pleasure to see you here. (laughs) So could you describe in three sentences or less uh, the gist of this documentary for us? Well, I had a great aunt who I never met. And during the 1920s, she... Uh, lived and worked in Provincetown and produced an astounding body of work. And then in the uh, 1925, a family lawyer checked her into an asylum and she never came out again. And all her work, her paintings, her block prints, her charcoals, her sketchbooks, everything was packed into trunks, shipped back to Wheeling, West Virginia, where she came from, and she was never heard from again. And then in the 1960s, my mom went up to my aunt and uncle's attic and opened these trunks And she said to my aunt, my God, Betty, do you know what you have here? And my mother brought a bunch of these paintings home with her to Northern California. And I grew up surrounded by Edith's work as a little girl. And she taught me how to paint. And I felt, I have felt a responsibility my entire life to do justice to Edith. And because I've had such a blessed career as an artist and a wonderful life as a gay woman, I wanted to return that favor to Edith and make sure that even though she disappeared in this terrible asylum, that someday her work would be recognized and honored. And where could we go to see this work? Aside from seeing the movie. We'll all see the documentary, of course. This goes without saying. If you really, really want to see all the work together, you go to the website called edithlakewilkinson.com. And we were just talking uh, uh, today, uh, it was recently ha- uh, hacked. <laughs> oh, no. And, and if you go on the line, uh, it will have some odd writing and you can buy 
pink wastebaskets right now. I think that's gone. But, I don't but it's think people will fixed. see that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So by tomorrow morning, <laughs> if you go to edithlakewilkinson.com, you will. Um, we have her biography and all of her work on display. Um, and you can also go to the website for the film, too, yeah, to get a lot of information. That'll link you there as well. Packedinatrunk.com? Yes. Packedinatrunk.com, where you can learn all about the film. We'll link you. We have a, a bunch of Edith's work there as well. You can find out about buying the DVD, which comes out tomorrow from Wolf Video, um, and lots of other behind-the-scenes things. So packedinatrunk.com. And before we go on, we should actually just make a point that we are giving away three copies of the DVD, Packed in a Trunk. We've got three nice. copies here. What do you have so to do to get one? Yeah, have to call us. Can we make us. up tricks or people yeah. want no, to know? No. Oh, okay. No. I mean, we could talk about that. But I think <laughs> let's just go with the old-fashioned phone call method. Uh, 818-985-5735. That's 818-985. And for the clever folk, KPFK. And we have three copies of this to give away. So call now and we might just have one for you. So now, Michelle, how did you get brought aboard on this project? Because you're not related to Edith, so I'm not. Although I feel like very close with Edith. I'm after sure by this now. Process, yes, for sure. Well, Jane, uh, my partner Barbara Green and I, who's our cinematographer and editor, mm -hmm. and Jane and her partner Tess have been friends for almost 20 years, and uh, we're independent filmmakers. Jane and Tess have been very, very generous and supportive to us and all of our projects over the years, and. When Jane decided that she really, it was time to bring Edith out into the light, uh, they approached my partner Barbara and I and asked if we would be interested in making a documentary about her great aunt. And what I told her was, I would love to make a documentary, but I would love to follow you guys on the journey to try to find out what happened to your great aunt. That's the film that I'd like to make. And so we, that's the film we made. So working with friends, though, sometimes that gets tricky. Did it, did well, it go well? It, it went very well. But also um, Tess and I approached Barb and Michelle because we really admire their work. Um, they, they, you had just completed a finished life yes. a year before, which is uh, I urge all the listeners to rent that film, A Finished Life. Where, where can they get uh, it? It's, with, it's on iTunes and from First Run Features, also A Finished Life. Um, and what's that about? It's about uh, a man named Greg Gore who had been HIV positive for 24 years, half his life. And he decided to go off his medications, and he was given six months to live. He gave away all of his belongings, bought an RV, and traveled across the country saying goodbye to all his friends and family uh, on his goodbye and no regrets tour. And we were on that journey with him. Mm -hmm. And he was lobbying for a patient's right to die in case he uh, started to get pneumonia or, or, or started to get ill. He wanted to be able to be in control of ending his own life. And so he, he rallied. He went to Sacramento. It was when it was a 2006-ish when that was all going on. And uh, he ended up uh, he ended up getting ill. He was cursed because he looked gorgeous. He was so mm -hmm. handsome uh, up until the very end. But he, he did end up uh, ending his own life. Um, we were with him until about 10 minutes before wow. he did that. But uh, it was uh, an incredible experience to be with him on that journey. And um, yeah, the film is out there, A Finished Life, The Goodbye and No Regrets Tour is All that right. film. So well, and, and because um, Michelle and Barb could handle such a delicate emotional condition with such sensitivity. 
Um, it, I knew we could absolutely trust them to handle this film. And I very reluctantly agreed to be in front of the camera. But you started I'm, out as an actress, though. Oh, God, years and years ago, years ago. But, but don't no, be coy no, and be a stranger yeah. to the camera. <laughs> but, uh, no, I'm more comfortable behind the camera as a writer-director. And, um, and it, it was... Um, there's pounding. There is right pounding. That could be Edith. We've had things like this happen. Oh, yes, with it us. could yeah. be. Maybe it's Edith yeah. coming out of the trunk it yet again. Could be. Yes. It could be. Um, but when you do a documentary, it, it is a it's a very intimate experience, and uh, to be wired for sound at the beginning of the day and to be followed around by a camera, it's it's um, it. it you can get very cranky, mm -hmm. but because there's such fine filmmakers, um, and I trusted um, Michelle's vision for this, I, I went along. We Tess and I went along with the process, process gladly. No. This couldn't have been just another film. You both have made an extraordinary range of films. This, of course, was your family, Jane. Yes. And going into this, I'm sure it brought up some emotions and you kind of did a detective process that was being filmed as well. I mean, did, was that difficult? Did you learn about yourself in doing this? I mean, it, was this unlike other stuff you've done? How did you, how did you sort of deal with that personal connection to well, this? Well, it was emotional because I have felt Edith tapping on my shoulder my entire life. Really, ever since I was a little girl, five-year-old kid growing up around these incredible paintings, and then as a young woman in New York sketching the same stuff that Edith sketched, just instinctually, and whenever I traveled around the world with my sketchbooks, I always felt Edith beside me, and it wasn't spooky or annoying or intrusive, it was just this marvelous presence. Um, so to be a, what was emotional for me was being able to do justice to her and to finally have strangers and people in the art community and the museum community finally turn to us and say, yes, she is a valuable artist. And, uh, I had been used to having her work and her life dismissed, not just by the relatives who called her a crazy spinster. Your relatives said that about her? <laughs> well, you know, they didn't want to talk about her because she was in an asylum. And back in the 50s right. and 60s, that was considered a family shame. Not well, and only she'd that, had a longtime friend. Companion. And a lady, companion. Yes. And also, uh, not until the past, what would you say, two decades, is it cool and popular to be a gay person. And, and it took me a long time to come out because I grew up in the 60s and 70s. Um, and it took a long time for Edith's Edith to be uh, acknowledged and celebrated as a gay woman as well. Um, and, you know, the great irony, her work is spectacular, and it does deserve 
uh, to be recognized, but her tragic story has helped her recognition. You know, there are thousands of gifted artists, but if you have a really terrible story like Van Gogh did, everybody wants to know about you. So in a way, her, her, um, her terrible end, in a way, has helped her art to be shared with the world. Well, now, what was the most interesting thing each of you discovered about Edith? Because it sounds like such a forensic process. There must have been all sorts of things that came up you had no idea well, one thing I would say, when we started this, uh, we had all of Jane's research that she had done over, over you know, 40 years, but we had one photograph of Edith. Uh, oh. A single photograph is all we had. A uh, studio portrait yes, from, from 1899. Yeah, yeah, so she was young before college. And, and uh, then uh, when uh, searching through other people's archives and working with different curators from around the country that, that everyone kind of jumped on board and it was an amazing momentum, but someone had found some photographs marked Wilkinson in a much more famous artist, Blanche Lazelle's, in her archives. It said Wilkinson. So now we had a photograph of what Edith looked like when she was in her 50s, right? In her yes. late 40s, early 50s. So to find out what she looked like, to find out what that young woman became, you know, that to me was uh, And then we a could magical... identify yes. her in other photographs. In other photographs. It became, and then she now was showing up picture. in every famous yeah. person from Provincetown. Like Zelig. Yeah. yeah. So uh, she was really esteemed in her own she time. She was, yes. and then forgotten, locked Gosh. away and forgotten. Yeah. And then I found it so interesting she was in Provincetown. So that was an artist community, but it wasn't, surely it wasn't exclusively gay back, not exclusively, but very gay back in the 20s. It was, was Trey it? gay. Was oh, it? Yeah. Has it always oh, yes. been? Artists oh, yeah. always means queer. <laughs> <laughs> a safe Even place not. to be yourself. Yeah. It was a safe yeah. place to love who you loved and walk openly in the streets mm-hmm. and, and, and I think celebrate your, your, your creativity, celebrate mm-hmm. your individuality and not be afraid, yeah. not be ashamed. You know, and what and what is it that you want people to take away from this documentary? But before before we answer that, we'd like to thank Alexander of Claremont, Michael of North Hollywood, Ken of Long Beach, and Laura of Santa Fe Springs for calling in and getting your very own copy of Packed in a Trunk. Hey guys, I know, enjoy it. Yeah. fantastic, enjoy. <laughs> but what do you want them to take away after they watch it tonight, right after this show? <laughs> well, everybody, um, has that forgotten relative in their life um, whose story may be lost forever. And, and Michelle and I and Tess and Barb hope that after you watch this that you will, if you do have someone like that in your life, whether they were put away in an asylum and given electroshock for being gay or for just being different, that you honor that person. Um, Also, if you've stopped painting or drawing or expressing yourself as an artist, we also hope that will encourage you to take up the brush again. Yeah, you have no idea how close to home (laughs) all of that is to me. I, I am very moved by how lucky might not be the right word, but lucky uh, that Edith was, that it just so happened that you, uh, her niece or great, great niece, great, great, great niece and not even by blood. 
by oh. in-law blood. But so, there you are. Yes. You know, in her sort of karmic wake, yes. um, just mm-hmm. happened to be a wonderful writer and director and able to bring this story. And I'm just thinking of all those lost stories. It's it's heartbreaking to kind of imagine it is all those other people and hope, you know, we may never hear those stories. That's a really marvelous phrase you just used, the karmic wake. And I think anyone listening tonight might think about whoever is in their karmic wake. I, I, I really do believe that, don't yeah, you? Yeah, no. I mean, and we've felt her energy with us, you know, if you believe it or don't believe that, throughout this. And we felt such a rush of joy when she was celebrated in Provincetown, when we brought this film there for the Provincetown uh, Film Festival this last summer and showed it in Town Hall, where we know she was 100 years earlier. And so just that energy and that celebration of her life being seen and, and no longer forgotten is an incredible, incredible gift that we all are now carrying with yeah. us. And I wish that to other people. Well, this is a that. fascinating story, and thank you two so much for bringing it, bringing it by and sharing it with us here on I Am Are You. Oh, thank you for having us, and fun. you guys are so cute this in real life. This is great. <laughs> yeah. My thank you. Yes. That's why we're on the radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yes, thank you so much, and, and I, I cannot wait to share this with friends of mine because it's just a lovely, lovely, really lovely documentary. To it. Thank you so much. You're so, going to oh, tell the people that it's coming out? On oh, that's DVD. right. It's coming, coming out, out tomorrow, tomorrow on DVD. And the, the websites, again, are packedinatrunk.com and... And edithlakewilkinson.com, and it can be found on wolfvideo.com Good. and on well, iTunes. Speaking of bringing stories to light, Wolf Video really does an amazing job with that. They really do. And if you like programming like the show you've heard tonight, if we've entertained you, informed you, made you think, dazzled you, whatever it was we did tonight, you know what it takes... Just a little, little time of, with a little bit of money. Yes, that's, your, money. that's where you go. I that wins all I know. KPFK.org. Don't call us. Just go to KPFK.org and let KPFK know that you were listening to IMRU and maybe show us a little bit of money love. That I know, because nice. you, you don't hear women like this on the radio all the time. No, you don't. You should, but you but don't. But we'll, we'll keep don't, doing it. We'll then give. I know. Yeah. Come on, give. I know. We'll do it as long as we can. Well, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer Steve Pride, our director Michelle Marie Gilkison, our board op Federico Garcia, our Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and Vosh Bodhi, our social media director. Vosh. Vosh. <laughs> Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon, more or less. And when you go there, please like that page, because I get the Facebook report, and I feel bad if nobody likes this one. I know. I'm so. like Don't it make right Wenzel cry. Thank you. I know. Look, our I'm, guests are doing it, you can do it too. I'm getting so delicate in my old age. So we're going to close with a song from Sonia Disappear Fear's new album Live at Maximal. It's called The Banker. Good night. Good night. This is the story of a middleman's life Loved baseball bowling and banging his wife And they had two children, Rick and Jane And they shared their love, kissed away the pain Every day the bills come in Middleman pays the best he can Now only bones are left of him Cause he gave the banker all of his skin 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 skin. 
middleman had not a greedy hand He was an honest Joe like a Campbell soup man But he lost his job and mama got thin And he built his house with a life with kin And every day the bills came in Money became his true religion There's not one law protecting him Cause he gave the banker all of his skin Gave the banker all of his skin How did the banker reward him? Raised his rate to three times ten Now the holy bank of Taj Mahal Bank of the Royal Untouchables Rain an endless rain of selfish goals And stole the American middleman's soul Gave the banker all of his skin 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 Middleman had not a greedy hand He was an honest Joe like a Campbell soup man But he lost his job and mama got thin When they took his house turned to a life of sin He held up Rahid at the local store When I win my millions I'll pay you back more But that day God forgot to keep score And middleman died in a puddle on the floor banker all of his skin gave the banker all of his skin how did the banker reward him raised his rate to three times ten not a banker it's a banker not a paper not a symbol not a building not a bubble just a bad seat human being not a bank Ooh, it's a banker, not a paper, not a symbol, not a building, not a bubble, just a batsy human being, not a bank. It's a banker, not a paper, not a symbol, not a building, not a bubble, just a
Thank you. I will be back. Thank you.